Well, good morning. Good to be with you this morning. My name is Bryce Hales, and I'm the pastor here at Resurrection OC. Good morning. Would you turn with me uh, in your Bibles, if you have one, to Jonah chapter 3. If you're uh, joining us for the first time this morning or haven't been here the last few weeks, we are right in the middle of a series looking at the book of Jonah. And uh, Jonah is, is a great book. It's, it's engaging. Most people know the story of Jonah. And, uh, and so it's fun to preach through this book. It's a great book to look at when you want to kind of look at how does God um, lead us into the world uh, on mission for the sake of people who don't yet know him. And um, one of the things that struck me this week is that the way that God does that is by exposing not just the darkness in the world around us, but in, by exposing the darkness that's actually in each of our hearts as well. And so uh, this has been a little bit of a disorienting book, uh, a, a disorienting journey through this book. And yet that's when it gets fun, isn't it? <laughs> so we are now at the point in the story where Jonah has run away from God. God called him to go east to Nineveh. Instead, he got on a ship going west and ended up getting tossed overboard and swallowed by a great fish. And uh, at the end of chapter 2, we saw last week that the fish vomits Jonah out onto the dry land. And that's where we pick up the story. So let me invite you to stand with me as we give our attention to God's word this morning. Listen as I read Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And the word of the Lord reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and removed his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes, and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Let's pray together. Oh God, would you send your spirit to shine a light on the darkness in our own hearts that we might see how much we have in common with Jonah, your reluctant servant, and that seeing how much we have in common with him, we might discover for the first time or for the thousandth time how good you have been to us in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. You may be seated, please. 
Do you know those guys that stand out in front of housing tracks for sale or apartments for rent with the big signs, their headphones on and twirling them around and dancing? And uh, a couple weeks ago, we were going to one of my son's soccer games in Irvine, and we're in the new kind of Great Park neighborhoods part of Irvine where there's I don't know, probably thousands of homes for sale. And every corner, it seemed like there was one of these guys, you know, breakdancing on the side with this big sign that says, new homes, this way. And uh, I get such a kick out of seeing those guys. I always wonder, where do they find these guys? And, and uh, how come they're all such good dancers? And um, how do they keep them motivated? I mean, it's got to be a minimum wage job. Um, but I really wonder, like, how effective that mode of communication would be. I've never bought a house or rented an apartment because I saw a guy break dancing with a sign. Uh, I just kind of get a kick out of him. But uh, as I saw one of these guys break dancing, twirling his sign around uh, a week or two ago, it really made me think of Jonah when he gets to finally, when he obeys God and gets up and goes to Nineveh because he walks into this city And I just picture him kind of like with this sign going, 40 days, 40 days, and Nineveh's going to be destroyed. It's the least compelling message I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) What motivates him to communicate in that way? And um, why, why why does he do this at all? Jonah finally arrives in Nineveh, and while he's now technically doing what God has called him to do, it's kind of like he's just barely doing it. And, um, you know, we're not told about the journey, but Nineveh is not on the coast. So the, the fish brings him back to the edge, presumably the eastern edge of the Mediterranean Sea. And he's got a long walk from there to Nineveh. And I, I like to imagine Nineveh, or Jonah walking to Nineveh, listening to his iPod. And I'm sure the song that he's listening to on his iPod is My Life by Billy Joel. On repeat, he's going, I don't need you to worry for me because I'm all right. I don't want you to tell me that it's time to come home. I don't care what you say anymore. This is my life. Go ahead with your own life and leave me alone. That is the refrain that Jonah's life just screams, isn't it? Leave me alone. The book of Jonah is the account of God, the God whose heart kind of beats with this missionary compassion for a wicked people. Um, we don't need to have a whole lot of compassion for Nineveh. They were, they were cruel. They were cruel people. But it's also the account of this reluctant missionary, the reluctant missionary who is sent by a missionary God to proclaim grace to a wicked city. And everything about this mission is messing with Jonah. He doesn't like it at all. God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh, and Jonah runs in the polar opposite direction. And having been thrown overboard and experiencing God's grace in the belly of the whale, he, well, I guess I can't call it a whale. It says it's a fish. Um, Jonah calls it the belly of death. Jonah's saying, like, I'm going to hell. <laughs> And as I was sinking down there, he experienced the grace of God. And grace, grace rescues him, and grace vomits him back on dry land and sends him back to Nineveh with a message. And I've got to imagine that Jonah gets vomited back onto dry land, 
and he emerges kind of blinded by the sunlight after he's been in the darkness of the belly of the fish for three days. And uh, he's got to be looking pretty strange. His skin and hair has no doubt been bleached by the fish's stomach acids. He probably reeks. I mean, just imagine this strange man, and now he finally reluctantly goes to Nineveh, and the best he can do is call out this message of impending doom. In 40 days, Nineveh is going to be overturned. Uh, He's obeying God, but just barely. He doesn't... um, (laughs) I said this before. This has got to be the worst sermon anybody's ever preached. It's only five words long in the original Hebrew. You might appreciate that part of it. It's very short, but it lacks compassion. There's no, uh, he, he makes no effort to sympathize with his audience. He doesn't offer them any hope. He doesn't hold out the grace of God. He just simply says the bare minimum of what is true, and yet his message is severely lacking. I mean, imagine if you'd come to church and we would have stood up and said, in 40 days, you're all going to be destroyed. I'll go home. <laughs> well, thanks, Pastor. That'd be super encouraging, right? What we see here is that God's heart beats with compassion for these wicked people. His heart beats with compassion for the undeserving. And Jonah enters this city like a minimum, minimum wage sign twirler and does the bare minimum. And we've got to wonder, how in the world is this an effective way for God to reach this people with his grace? And yet, despite or against all odds, God acts in a mighty way. God moves in a mighty way. This is not the model for the way that God is calling Christians to kind of go out into the world. Please do not go out into the world and preach the Nineveh sermon. You will make many enemies, (laughs) very few friends. And yet I believe that Jonah's reluctance to obey God should fill us today with a lot of hope. Because what this is saying to us is God can even use Jonah as reluctant as he is. And if God can even use Jonah, maybe he could even use people as reluctant as we are to be his servants in the world to affect change in our time and in our place too. When we read this passage, we wonder how could God bring such a tremendous work through such a terrible message? How could he? But perhaps a better question, a more pressing question for us Resurrection of C is this. How might God use us, reluctant though we may be, to affect similar change in our time and in our place? I want you to look with me at this passage. At Jonah 3, I want you to see the way that God's grace works both in the messenger and in those who hear his message. So first, look with me at the way that grace equips us the way that grace equips us. Verse 1 of Jonah 3 says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Now, why do you think it says that the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time? It's not a long book. Did you forget that the word of the Lord had already come to Jonah a first time? I mean, in most Bibles, you can see the entire book at one time. Like, we didn't, we're not forgetting the details here. But I think that the author is emphasizing that this happened again because it's reminding us of all that has happened in the life of Jonah. And I believe that these words emphasize that the word of the Lord came to Jonah again 
a second time because it's emphasizing the character, the grace, and the patience of the God who calls Jonah and who calls us. How many of us uh, maybe grew up hearing the words, don't make me tell you, what, twice, right? Don't make me say it again. How many of us grew up hearing those words and swore we would never repeat those words to our children and yet much to our shock and much to our horror, we find the words coming out of our mouths. I don't think I've ever said, don't make me say this again to my kids. What I usually say to my kids is, I don't want you to obey, obey me in five seconds or in three seconds. I want you to obey me now. <laughs> uh, obey me right away. That is what I expect from my children. And in this sentence, we learn so much about the character of the God who is all-powerful, and yet he comes to Jonah and speaks a second time. He comes back to us who are slow in responding, like our children are slow in responding. He comes back to us and graciously invites us again to follow him. And what we see from this is this, that before the message of grace can come through Jonah or us, Grace must first transform the messenger. Before the message of grace can come through us, the message of grace must transform us. Let me show you what I mean. Can you imagine what would have happened if in chapter 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah and said, get up and go to Nineveh, and Jonah had gotten up and gone to Nineveh with all of his hatred for Nineveh? I mean, he just barely pulls it off, like after getting swallowed by a fish. Like, how much more convincing do you need that God is going to do something here through you, Jonah? Um, I would imagine that if Jonah had immediately gotten up with all of his pride and anger and kind of latent racism and immediately gone to, Jonah, uh, to Nineveh the first time, that very little would have been accomplished through him in the city there. Uh, when we meet Jonah at the beginning of the book, he's like the person who knows all of the answers to Bible trivia. He knows his theology. He knows that there's a God who is gracious, but he hasn't experienced that grace for himself. He's the guy who talks about God, but doesn't really seem to have had a life changed by him. And so first God must shape and mold Jonah. First Jonah must experience the grace of God for himself. So here's the irony. Jonah's disobedience Jonah's flight from God is the very thing that God uses to prepare Jonah to be his messenger. You get that? <laughs> is Jonah wrong for disobeying God? Is he sinning against God? Yes, he absolutely is. And yet God is powerful enough to use even our disobedience, even our rebellion, even our running from him. He will use that in our lives to transform us, to shape us into the sort of people that he can use in the world. It's as he experiences God's grace that he becomes tremendously effective. Theologian and pastor Sinclair Ferguson wrote this in his commentary on Jonah. He said, broken and contrite-hearted Jonah was precisely the man, uh, was precisely the kind of man that God could use in Nineveh. And I wonder how God might use our brokenness to shape us into the kind of people he wants to use in our world. Until we know our sinfulness, until we are aware of our brokenness, until we have 
not just failed, but kind of experienced the belly of the whale, uh, going through the wall like Jonah does. It's not that God's not gracious, it's just that his grace doesn't tend to transform us. Our brokenness is the necessary, our awareness of our brokenness is the necessary ingredient to become useful messengers of God. He uses it to equip us for service. It's true for Jonah, it's true for us as well. This week, I uh, uh, went to a conference um, with Dustin and Stevie in San Diego, and this is the first time in a long time I've been to a, a, a conference that was not like a ministry. It wasn't for pastors, it was for entrepreneurs. And the first, we got there and went to this workshop, and everybody went around the room and introduced themselves, and I don't know, maybe 30 people. And... Um, you know, these are all people who have started companies and are, are starting companies. And it got to me and, it's, and I you know, said, I'm, my name is Bryce and I'm a pastor and I'm starting a church. And you just kind of see the like, huh, didn't expect that one. So one of the great things about being a pastor is as soon as people discover that you're a pastor, the blessing and the curse is that small talk is like impossible. There's no more small talk. And so... Uh, by day two of the conference, somebody was coming over to me and saying, I heard a rumor that you're a pastor. I'm like, the rumor is true. <laughs> um, and that night, a woman came and sat down uh, across from me at dinner and began to tell me her story. And she talked about moving to San Diego uh, several years ago and getting invited by a friend to go to church. And she said, I had grown up in the Midwest going to church my entire life. But it wasn't until I moved to San Diego and my career fell apart and I lost my job and I hit rock bottom that then that I actually encountered Jesus for the first time. I had been in church all of my life, but I never knew God until I became aware of my unbrokenness. We hear that story all the time. It's through our brokenness that grace finds us. It's through our brokenness that grace equips us. And the reason that I'm kind of harping on that this morning is this, because I think there are kind of two sorts of Christians. There's the sort of Christian that has a deep awareness of their own sin and brokenness, not to beat themselves up, but because they've experienced the grace of God rescuing them. And so that sort of Christian can talk about the way that God's grace has met them and found them and healed them in a way that is hopeful and life-giving. And there is a second sort of Christian, and that is the sort of Christian who kind of tries to keep the details of their brokenness under wraps and live as if it wasn't uh, their, their existence, their reality. I have some good friends who... Um, will regularly tell these kind of glory days stories of, you know, life in high school or, or, or you know, whatever it was. And, you know, they tell these, oh, it was so great. You know, we'd go down on these uh, tubing trips down the river and we always had the extra inner tube for the beer cooler. And then they'll pause and they'll go, this was before we were Christians. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, like... If we're trying to convince people that we haven't done anything stupid since meeting Jesus, <laughs> I mean, good luck. <laughs> You're not living in reality, I would suggest. Uh, friends, I think we need uh, to, I need to say this. If, 
if I'm trying to convince people that uh, I don't have like dark places in my life um, this week that I am um, experiencing the grace of God transforming, then what hope do I have to offer the world? Because what we all have in common is that we are broken and yet Christians have hope and meaning in our brokenness. We don't need to pretend that that's not true. Jonah, without an awareness of his brokenness, would be simply intolerable. I mean, he's barely tolerable having spent three nights in the belly of a fish, right? And the same is true for us. God will shape us through our brokenness, through our disobedience. He will use it all to equip us to serve others. Now, that doesn't mean that God takes sin lightly or that we should take sin lightly and that sin is not a serious offense against a holy God. It is. But Romans 5 says that where grace abound, or where sin abounds, grace superabounds. And it's where grace superabounds, this superabundant grace that transforms us and equips us for the future. A few of us are working through a book by a pastor named Pete Scazzaro and he says um, in a chapter that we were looking at this week that the ordinary way that God grows us is by helping us journey through what he calls walls. And a wall is a, a trial. A wall is an experience where you, uh, you know, life is a journey. And a wall is, is, is getting to a point where it feels like things did not go at all the way that I would have expected. Or the way that I'm used to relating to God in my life doesn't work anymore. Life doesn't make sense. It doesn't feel like anything's going right. Um, And my attempts to relate to God feel fruitful. And the problem, I think, for many of us is that we've come to expect that becoming a Christian is like opening the door to a life of rainbows and unicorns. And then when, like, real life happens to us and you hit a wall, you just bounce off. And um, growth comes through remaining faithful to God as we journey through that trial, as we journey through the wall by his grace. And so a wall may be something like losing a job, uh, a marriage unraveling, a cancer diagnosis, um, shattered dreams. But so often when we encounter those things, Uh, instead of turning to God and saying, God, what are you doing through this? And simply waiting as God, I don't know, does whatever he does um, in us. We say, okay, I lost a job. That's the problem. Solution, find a new job. I can get this done. Now, of course, you're going to need to find a new job if you lose a job. But what God intends for us is not to bounce off the wall and figure out a solution to it on our own, but to turn to him and say, okay, God, I don't know what you're doing. This doesn't make sense to me at all. I cannot see uh, why you would allow this in my life, and yet I trust you. And so I'm going to hold on. I'm going to hold on for as long as it takes because I trust that as I hold on to you, God, that you will be the one who is faithful to me. And you know what happens in those moments is that God shapes us and molds us, and I believe it's really the only way to become both confident and humble at the same time. Friends, here is the good news of this passage. Our half-hearted steps towards really depending on God, okay? Our reluctance, moving slowly in the direction 
of depending on God, when it's combined with the power and the strength of a God who equips us with his grace, is the very thing God is going to use to change the world. Can you believe that? This is what this passage is telling us. As somebody has said, this is a description of the church. We, the unwilling, led by the incompetent, have been doing the unbelievable for so long with so little that we will now attempt the impossible with nothing but God and the gospel behind us. This is our life. This is why we're here, Resurrection OC. This is our story. The first thing we learn from this passage is this, that God intends for the salvation of one sinner, Jonah, or me, or you, to lead to the salvation of many others. The second thing this passage tells us is this, God brings life out of death. God brings life out of death. So the second thing I want you to see in this passage is how grace saves us. How grace saves us. Jonah goes to Nineveh having been shaped and equipped by God's grace in the belly of the whale and still he only just barely manages this terrible message of wrath and destruction and yet somehow despite all like appearances and what anybody would think God uses him um, that I mean that is both humbling and tremendously encouraging that you know the, the winsomeness of our message is not the thing that God needs in order to change the hearts of others somehow God um, uses Nineveh, uh, Jonah and the people of Nineveh here and, it, and they respond and it says in verse 5 the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. This wicked culture of death that uh, paraded the destruction of their enemies before uh, their children relents and repents and turns and embraces uh, the God who offers grace. Notice this description of the thoroughness of their repentance. It says first that they believed God. Okay, they heard the words of Jonah, not terribly winsome, not terribly persuasive, not terribly encouraging. They heard the words of Jonah, but they believed God. And so what it's saying is that repentance begins with the heart. It begins with the inward. But the next thing it says that is that they called for or they declared so they, they, it began inward, but then they told it to others. Uh, the grace of God that begins with the heart has to come outward in our words, but it doesn't just remain words. It leads to behavior. It says that they called for a fast and they put on sackcloth, you know, these signs of repentance. And then finally, it says from the greatest to the least, uh, it, it, it didn't just affect individuals, but it began to transform the culture. And in fact, in the rest of the chapter, we read that the king, in fact, uh, repents and kind of enculturates or institutionalizes repentance in the life of this enormous city. This is substantive change. Um, what this is telling us is this. There is no person that is too far uh, for the reach of the grace of God. There's no heart that is so hardened that it cannot be melted by God's grace. God is not in the business of self-improvement. God is in the business of resurrection. That is such good news, friends. 
He's in the business of bringing dead things, dead people back to life. How is that possible? How did God uh, so radically transform this wicked city through the words of a reluctant prophet? Um, Why did Nineveh, the military super bully of its day, repent and believe God? I, I think it would be hard to really fully understand if all we had was the book of Jonah, but several years later, almost a thousand years later in the Gospels, we read that the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say to Jesus, you know, give us some sign. We want to see some, like, do some, do a sign so we know that we can believe in you. You know, we're not asking for much, just like a little magic trick, something showy that would show us that your words are something that we can believe. Wouldn't that be, I mean, how many of us have prayed something like that? God, just send me an angel just one time. I'll never doubt you again. I promise. And Jesus' response is, you wouldn't believe that even if you saw it because you're wicked. I like how Jesus just cast like, you're, you're wicked. <laughs> but then he says, um, no sign will be given to you except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he goes on to explain that just as Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, so Jesus himself would go to the cross and be crucified, and he would be laid in a tomb, and he would spend three days and three nights in the belly of death itself. And after three days, he, like Jonah, would emerge again to new life. What Jesus is saying is this, it's out of Christ's weakness that his saving power will emerge. It's out of death that life springs forth. Why did that transform Nineveh? This is really beautiful. God doesn't come to the superpower of the day and say, I'm going to go toe-to-toe against you in strength, though he could have and wiped Nineveh out. But instead of kind of in a power conflict going toe-to-toe against Nineveh, he instead does this sort of judo move where he says to this culture of death, I'm going to take death upon myself and I'm going to take it to the grave with me. (laughs) Death is swallowed up wholesale on the cross of Christ and Jesus emerges victorious three days later in life. It's the wonder of the gospel that God brings life out of death. So let me ask you this. Have you experienced the life-shattering grace of God? Has your life been utterly turned upside down by God and his grace? Christianity is not God inviting people to become nicer. It's not God telling people to be better. It's God turning our lives upside down as he brings life out of the darkness by the power of the cross. Have you experienced that? If not, all you have to do is believe like the Ninevites. I mean, Jonah didn't even tell them what to do. Just cry out, who knows, perhaps God may relent and be gracious to you. He will, not perhaps. There's no perhaps about it. If you've yet to experience the grace of God for yourself, just cry out to him. But if you have experienced this life-altering death-producing life sort of grace, if you're a Christian, then listen to this. You are called to go to the darkest places 
and talk to the most reluctant people as an agent of God's grace. And you are called to go and shine the light of the gospel in those dark places that are out there and also that are in here. That's what God calls us to do, church. This is who we are. This is our story. God is using our individual and collective stories. He is shaping us even through our failure to be the sort of people that he will use to bring change into the world. And so if you would say, yes, I'm a Christian, let me just ask you this. Does your heart you know, burn for South Orange County? There's 3.2 million people in Orange County. The book of Jonah we're going to see ends next week with God saying there are 120,000 people in that city. Shouldn't I care about them? Does your heart burn for the 3.2 million people in Orange County, many of whom have yet to know, come to know Jesus? Jesus himself uh, prays, uh, not really prays, but kind of more laments. He says, he cries out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to, stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and yet you were not willing. Jesus looks at this great city and says, my heart breaks for you. Does our heart break for our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, even ourselves? Or do we, like Jonah, resent God for calling us? Because these are the options, friends. Do we resent the fact that there's a God who would say, your life is my life? Does that offend us? Would we prefer to sing like Jonah, like Billy Joel, it's my life, it's my life. You go ahead with your own life, but you leave me alone. Friends, God is at work in South Orange County. And I don't think he's going to change this place through an elaborate show of power. But what if in another judo move, he used a little church like Resurrection OC in partnership with thousands of others to change the lives of people, 3.2 million people in Orange County. I want to finish by telling you about a more modern Jonah, 19th century, uh, 20th century, rather, woman named Corrie Ten Boom. Um, Corrie Ten Boom was a Dutch woman who cared for and hid Jews in Holland during the Second World War. And in 1944, Corrie's uh, whole family was arrested by the Nazis and taken to the Ravensbrück concentration camp where over the next year uh, she watched as her sister uh, died before her face and the Nazis uh, did horrible and unspeakable things uh, to them. After the end of the war, by 1947, Corrie Ten Boom returned to Germany 
to speak to uh, those who had um, enslaved her about the forgiveness of Jesus. And one night in Munich in 1947, she spoke to a group of people in the basement of a church. And she said, like often happened, uh, the audience mostly just listened quietly, straight-faced, and left in silence at the end of her talk. And um, that one night, as people are filing out, she saw one man that caught her eye. One man she hoped would not recognize her. One man that she recognized as one of the former Nazi prison camp guards. And that man waited until everyone else had left and came forward and stuck out his hand to shake Corey Ten Boom's hand. And she said that she put her hand in her purse and stood there hoping that he hadn't recognized her. When the man said to her, good message, Fraulein. I was one of the guards at the Ravensbrück prison camp. He said, I have become a Christian, and I know that God forgives me, but I need to hear it from your lips, too. And she said that she stood there with her hand in her purse, uh, and she said her blood ran cold. And she prayed, God, give me the grace. Give me the grace to forgive. And in that moment, the grace of God flooded her. And she looked at that man with true forgiveness in her eyes. Now that is incredible, but here's why I'm telling you the story. Because Corey Tenbrum later reflected on the moment and said this. She said, you would think that if I could forgive that man, that I would never struggle to forgive anyone else again. And she said, though I forgave a man who enslaved me and humiliated me and abused me, I still lose uh, sleep regularly at night over my need to forgive my friends. And then at 80 years old, she said this, I cannot store up good feelings or behavior. I can only draw them freshly from God every day. And that's true for Corey Ten Boom, and it's true for Jonah, and it's true for us. We cannot store up good feelings about God or good behavior about God. We can only walk with him. As he uses our brokenness to shape us, as he gives us his grace when we fail, then we can move out into the world confidently and yet humbly to be agents of his grace for others. Would you pray with me? Oh God, I pray that you would transform us with this invitation, this message of grace. That we wouldn't just hear words and be moved by them, but your grace would work its way into our hearts. God, we have been forgiven much. Would you help us be people who forgive? We are broken people, and you have healed us by the cross of Jesus. Would that cross transform us? 
and drive us out into the world with a heart that beats like yours for the city that we live in. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.